Encountering Bible reading plans have just crashed against the shores of Leviticus. You know, Genesis is pretty good. There's a lot of action in there. And Exodus is pretty good. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's just a bit of a slog for like 40 pages. This is where I found myself in my own Bible reading plan not too long ago. Um, and I was struck by it, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't move very fast. In Leviticus 1, verse 3, it says, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And it's basically that for the next 25 pages. And my own Bible reading plan had me in Leviticus for about three weeks. And I ended up finding it more interesting than I had before. And I found it so interesting, actually, that I decided I needed to, to preach on it. Because I think we all kind of wonder when we get to this, you know, 40 pages on which kind of offerings cover up which kinds of sins and which gender of bull you're allowed to cook and which insects you're allowed to eat and which insects you're not allowed to eat. You seem to wonder, like, what's the point? Why is this in here? Why is this in Scripture? And so I had some time on my hands and I decided to do a dive into it and try to find out why Leviticus is in here. What's the point? Because even though it seems dry or macabre, hard to get through, we know that it's important. Romans 15.4 tells us that for everything was written, that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And that's why Leviticus is important. Not just because it's true, not just because it's history, but because, as in all of scripture, it gives us hope. And so I'm not going to do a six-month-long study through Leviticus, as our friend Dan might, but instead I'm going to kind of go over it in just one sermon, looking at sort of the three key themes that I found in Leviticus. The first theme is the law of Leviticus. The second theme is the love of Leviticus, is the life of Leviticus, and the third is the love of Leviticus. First of all, the law of Leviticus. Exodus, which we're going through now as a church, is a very exciting book. There's a lot of action there that we don't really see in Leviticus. But Exodus is telling us what God led Israel out of. Spoilers, I'm sorry if you're going to Exodus for the first time, but in the end, Moses does get them out. And Exodus is all about taking the people out of slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt. And Leviticus comes next to tell us what God was leading Israel into. Because anytime you leave one place, you have to go somewhere else. What is going to replace the slavery and servitude of life in Egypt? Leviticus tells us that it's servitude to a diff of a different kind to a different and better master. And this was going to look, how this was going to look was spelled out in Leviticus. Through the moral laws, how you should act, the ceremonial laws, how you should maintain cleanness, and the sacrificial laws, how you should atone for failures in either the ceremonial or the moral laws, as well as sacrifices of joy or of dedication, etc. And really all these laws, the moral and the ceremonial and the sacrificial, they fall under a single theme. These are laws, these are commands, these are instructions for how the people of Israel were to reorient their lives around the Lord. And this actually becomes really clear if you look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. 
It's more clear in the ancient Hebrew, which I don't read, but I've had explained to me. But you can actually see it in English, but you need someone to point it out to you. And I've had people point it out to me, and so now I can play that role for you. To be clear, I'm not an expert. Anytime I'm telling you what a word means in ancient Hebrew, I don't read it. I have been told. I'm taking that out of faith from experts. But the first seven chapters are interesting because they're instructions for sacrifices to God. And it's not easy reading, but it's interesting. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, there are five kinds of sacrifices. And God gives seven major commandments about how to carry out these rituals. And then starting in chapter 8, when they're ordaining the priests who are going to do these rituals, God gives seven major commands about how to ordain them. And those commands take seven days to carry out. And it gets really interesting when we get to where the priests are going to do these rituals. Because it's in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And in Exodus, which we'll get to later, I assume, uh, God gives seven major commands as to how to build the tabernacle. It's seven, seven, seven. And you may know that seven to the ancient Hebrews represented a holy number, but more specifically, seven related to creation, the seven days that God used to create the heavens and the earth. And that's what God is doing here. He's ordaining a new creation. In Genesis, God created the earth, and then God's children fell from the garden, and then into Exodus, they rose and they fell, and they rose and they fell, and one guy would do good, and then his children would do badly. They fell in the flood, they rose up in Egypt, and then they fell in Egypt again into slavery. In Exodus, God brings his people out of slavery, and in Leviticus, he's starting over, a new beginning. And so he gives people all these instructions on how to live their lives. And when you read through Leviticus, you read all of the things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do, the things you're supposed to eat and not supposed to eat, you know, the plants that you can see and the plants that you can't see, it might sound like God is kind of a control freak. But really, he's not. Distinction is important. Do this, don't do this. Go here, don't go here. All of our life is distinctions, and it's very important because without distinctions, we couldn't have anything productive or anything beautiful. Anybody who has ever had a baby knows that when you're getting the nursery ready, you know, you don't just throw up whatever paint, you don't just get whatever kind of crib, you think about everything you want for the life of your child. When you're starting a business, you know, you think, well, I'm going to charge this much for my product, not this much. When you're planting a garden, you know, just throw your seeds willy-nilly, you know, you do a row of this and a row of that. Everything that gives us life, that gives us beauty, because productivity comes from distinctions. When you're baking, you don't just put any old ingredients in there. You put this much sugar, not this much salt. Distinctions are important. And all ways of life have an order to them, even if they're just your own whims. You know, Nike's slogan, if it feels good, do it. Even that is an order. I would say it's a bad order. But it's putting your own interest, your own momentary pleasures at the top. There's no such thing as a way of life without distinctions, without an order at the top. And so God is reordering, reorienting Israelite life in a pretty radical way. Because no matter what you have at the top, you know, it might be something good, it might be family, it might be a business success, it might be romantic success, it might be respecting your community, it might be your party that you support winning elections that you put as your number one goal. But it's always something. 
And I'm going to get into the meaning of these laws shortly, but on the broadest possible level, all these laws, moral, ceremonial, and sacrificial, speak to a refocusing of life that puts God at the top and in the center. And in everything you do, all day, every day, you're forced to think about how you're treating God and how you're treating your neighbor. My pieces of paper are folded in a very inconvenient way. Which is probably why dad doesn't print his off. <laughs> a lot of the laws in Leviticus, if you read through, they make sense to us, at least as a concept. You know, some of them are surprising, but the moral laws, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not make a profit off any business dealings with the poor. But it's these other laws, these ceremonial laws, where things get weird. And I think, therefore, where they get interesting. These are the laws of the clean and the unclean. What you can and you can't eat, what you can and you can't touch, where you can and you can't go. And these ceremonial laws are where Jewish folks you know, derive their kosher laws from as well. And these laws are extensive. In just five chapters, Leviticus 11 to Leviticus 15, the word unclean is used more than 100 times. Everything in Israelite life, people, places, things, animals, even times of day, existed on a spectrum from clean to unclean. Cleanness to uncleanness. Pigs are unclean. Sheep are clean. Hawks are unclean. Doves are clean. Dead bodies are really unclean. Women who are menstruating are kind of unclean. People with a physical de deformity are just barely unclean. And I've heard sermons where teachers have really gone through some kind of mental gymnastics to make sense of this, with how it was, it was good strategy on a, on a on a practical level, you, know, you can't eat pork because pigs carry trichinosis. The way to do that is not only inaccurate, but it also ignores the theological implications of the passage. Because it's not really health-based. You can definitely get diseases from a lot of the clean animals, especially given the state of healthcare in Bronze Age Near East. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of this stuff, nobody knows. Even the experts, the most highly respected people on Leviticus, couldn't tell you why some of this is in the text. Many of the experts have to throw their arms in the air and say, well, I'm sure God had a good reason. But while a lot of the specifics are mysterious, much like our God, if you look closely, you'll see that even the broad theological underpinnings are clear. In The Shawshank Redemption, Tim Robbins' character tells Morgan Freeman, in the context of whether it's worth thinking about the future, about a time when you might be out of church, uh, out of prison, he said, you can either get busy living or you can get busy dying. You have two options. You have life or you have death. And the same was true for the Israelites, who were stuck wandering in the wilderness for decades. God is perfectly holy and perfectly clean. Cleanness is associated with God and with holiness, and most clearly with life. Uncleanness is associated with chaos and sin, and most closely with death. That's why corpses were considered unclean, because they were the most vivid representation of death, a literal dead human being. Carnivorous animals like birds of prey, wolves, biting insects, those are all unclean because they cause death, or at least they hang out around it. Women who give birth or menstruate are losing some piece of their life, some piece of their blood, 
especially 3,000 years ago, it's at all uncommon for those things that result in death. So that was a little bit unclean. Animals with hoofs are clean, but animals with claws are unclean because claws mean scratching and killing and death. Skin diseases and mildew, whether they are contagious or not, are unclean because they also represent sickness and death. This is where we get into the life of Leviticus. These ceremonial laws are incredibly concerned with life. Life and not death. Living and not dying. And it should be noted that these aren't value judgments. Obviously having a deformity or a disease or menstruating or dying don't make you a worse person than somebody who's not. And many people regularly had to become you know, somebody has to bury the dead body. Somebody has to be the undertaker. What these laws are doing is showing us the effects of sin on the world. None of these unclean things happen to you because you sinned, but they exist because we sinned. In a world with no sin, in a world without the fall of man, if we were still in the Garden of Eden, nobody would die. No one would get sick. There'd be no more tears, no more pain. Disease and deformity and painful and dangerous childbirth and death are all only a part of our life because we live in a fallen world. The moral laws, the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not steal, those show us how we are riddled with sin. How everywhere we go, whatever we do, we find ourselves not quite living up to the standard that God has for us. We're all selfish, we all lie, we all put ourselves ahead of others. And we all put our own personal desires ahead of God. But these ceremonial laws show us how we're ravaged by the effects of sin. Every part of our life is affected by the brokenness of the world around us. And so having these laws as a part of the daily life of Israelites force them to look at those effects in the day to day. You have to look sin in the eyes every moment of your life. And God, being perfectly holy and perfectly clean and perfectly alive, he cannot and will not coexist with sin and uncleanness and death. So the sacrifices that came out of this, these laws symbolize the fact that if God was going to dwell among us, among the Israelites, they had to be willing to separate themselves from sin and death, both morally and symbolically. Get busy living or get busy dying. It can't be both, and life can't coexist with death. There's a whole category in kosher dietary laws about this. You're not allowed to cook an animal and smother's milk, because that would be mixing life with death. So every time you became unclean, you had to ceremonially wash yourself. You had to make a blood sacrifice. The only thing that could wash away your uncleanness before God was blood, the very source of life itself. And if we can read Leviticus, if we can read these laws, without being absolutely broken by our deep-down uncleanness, we aren't paying enough attention. And that's what brings us to the love of Leviticus. Because the Israelites really do find themselves bound up in some pretty back-breaking regulations. Certainly following these ceremonial laws and these sacrificial laws seem preferable to the punishment that the Israelites would deserve for their repeated sin. But it's a heavy load. After every month, after every harvest, after every Sabbath, after every menstruation, after every death in the family, 
after every lie you told, every blasphemy you committed, any time you made a promise, a profit off the poor, you had to bring and sacrifice a goat or a bull or a ram without blemish. And the financial costs of that alone are significant. Although God did make provision for the poor, if you couldn't afford a goat, you could sacrifice a dove, you could sacrifice a pigeon. But the culmination of all of these different sacrifices is the annual Day of Atonement. The Hebrew people called it Yoma, just the day. And there's an Old Testament scholar named Ray Dillard who described the day, Yoma, this way. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the day, the Day of Atonement, he stayed up all night, praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone, or pay the penalty for, his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again, and new white linen was put on him, and he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe, and they dressed him in brand new pure linen, and he went out into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of the people. And this was all done in public. The temple was crowded, and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen, and he bathed behind it, but the people were present, they saw him bathe, dress, go in, come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity, because this priest represented them before God. This day, the Day of Atonement, was the fulcrum of their entire sacrificial law. And the Israelites' Day of Atonement bears a striking similarity to another day of atonement. Just like the high priest of the Israelites, Jesus prepared a week beforehand, the Holy Week, starting on Palm Sunday. Just like the high priest, Jesus stayed up all night the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. But instead of the high priest with his holy robes, Jesus Christ was stripped of his garment. Instead of being cheered on by the high priests, he Cheered on like the high priest, he was abandoned by all of his followers. Jesus wasn't bathed in a purifying pool. He was bathed in the spit and the blood that was thrown on him by his enemies, jeering as he went. Jesus didn't get to come close to God in the holiest of holies like the high priest did. But instead, God turned his face away from him. In chapter 16 of Leviticus, it says that when Aaron was done with the atonement ceremony, he took off his linens and left them there. What did the apostles find when they rushed to the empty tomb? Empty linens. Because the atonement was complete. And suddenly, looking at it through this lens, the sacrificial laws don't seem so burdensome. The only reason that they ever did was because I missed the point. Leviticus isn't about how much we have to do for God. It's about how much God was willing to do for us. Unlike the high priest, Jesus didn't have to start out by making a sacrifice for himself. 
because he was the lamb without blemish. When the high priest completed the atonement, he came back out from behind the veil of the Holy of Holy, Holiest of Holies, and the ritual was done for one more year. But when Jesus completed his atonement, the veil of the Holiest of Holies was ripped in two because the ritual was done forever. The final act of atonement in Leviticus was the release of a scapegoat, which would carry the Israelites' iniquities on its back as it ran into the wilderness. So too does Jesus put our sin on his back and carry our sins far away from us. Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so too has God removed our sins from us. This is the love of Leviticus. In chapter 17 of Leviticus, the Lord tells Israel that he has given them the blood on the altar to make atonement for souls. And this must have been confusing to them. Because sure, God provided the animals in the sense of creating them years ago. But it's a weird way to say it. But it points to something much more. Only in the fullness of the New Testament do we see everything the Old Testament has to say. Leviticus isn't primarily about laws. It's about love. And the mission of Jesus is shown in the cleanliness, not, cleanliness laws as well. The love affects not just the law, but the life. In Luke 6, when Jesus was becoming pretty famous around Galilee and Judea, people that were sick or deformed or bleeding would reach out to him to touch him. They would follow him wherever he went. In Luke 6, he goes up to a hill and they're following him and chasing him. And to a first century Jew, that would have sounded like a zombie movie. Because if any of these people touched him, he would become unclean like them. Death and disease and uncleanness was contagious. If death touches you, you're a little bit dead. If uncleanness touches you, you become unclean. Luke 6, 19, all the crowd sought to touch him. But the turning point comes in the second half of 19. Because for power came out of him and healed them all. In the wilderness, anyone that was clean would become unclean if you touched something or someone that was unclean. The cleanness, the uncleanness, the death was contagious. But when Jesus came into contact with uncleanness, with lepers, with menstruating women, with literal dead bodies, that law starts to work in reverse. Lepers were healed, bleeding, women stopped bleeding, corpses came back to life. Jesus was so clean, so fully alive, that his cleanness and his life was contagious. Everything he touched, everyone he met, became clean through him. Until finally, with his resurrection, all cleanliness laws were abolished forever. And upon his return, death itself will come to an end. Every wound, every illness, every sin, every piece of death in this world is repaired, reduced, removed, and destroyed when it comes into contact with Jesus Christ.